Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Every day we're reminded of the death toll of COVID, the loss of jobs, the suffering in people's lives. But are there at least some upsides to the pandemic, such as less time spent commuting by many people, working from home, and the increased amount of family time for millions of parents and their kids? We'll discuss that today. Families and COVID, Erica Commissar. We are an I society, a me, me, me society, not a we society. And that shift has been very, very hard on children in particular. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? The headline of a recent article in the Weekend Review section of the Wall Street Journal really caught my eye. It read, lockdowns have a bright side for teens. Right. The story was based on a recent survey of teenagers that found they're talking more with their parents and, believe it or not, showing signs of improved mental health. They're also getting more sleep during the pandemic when many schools have switched to remote learning, so they're not getting up at six in the morning to take the bus to school. Erica Commissar wrote the article. She's a psychoanalyst and the author of the book, Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. Erica joins us in our remote studio from New York. Thanks for being with us on How Do We Fix It? Thank you so much for having me. In your article, you say there's something of a silver lining in the COVID-19 pandemic. What is it? Actually, there's a few silver linings. One of them has to be that parents are getting to spend more time with their children, and children are getting to spend more time with their parents, and siblings are getting to spend more time together. So um, from the perspective of the children, and so children are getting a great deal more of their parents' time and attention and energy than they have previously. Um, From the perspective of uh, women and men who have had to work really hard and be out of the home, they're also getting to spend more time with their children because they're able to work remotely. And that's not everyone, because there's also a lot of pressure on parents who work to do both 
homeschooling and being with their children and working. But finally, uh, for teenagers, there's a silver lining because of a study that came out from the Institute on Family Studies that basically said in the spring of COVID and through the summer that there was a drop in depression in adolescents because one, they're getting more sleep and two, they're with their families more. So even though teenagers are more unhappy than they were before, they're less clinically depressed. I assume they're, they're more unhappy because they're not able to hang out with their friends. That survey that you quoted compares findings taken during the, the pandemic with comparing them with a couple of years ago? It went from 27% before COVID in terms of clinical depression in adolescents to 17%. So that's quite a bit of a drop. We're talking about a study that uh, was about almost 1,600 children, adolescents. So it's a pretty decent sample size. And, and that's been my experience as well, which is talk to families and uh, parents who are coming to me because their children or adolescents are struggling and they want help. I'm finding that uh, children and adolescents are doing better generally in terms of their mental health diagnoses, even though it's uncomfortable for them. But it's okay to be uncomfortable. Being uncomfortable and unhappy sometimes is part of the human condition. And certainly, there's a lot about COVID that's making a lot of people unhappy. But it's uh, being together as families, we are, in general, less depressed. Now, that doesn't include people who are alone, right? So people who are isolated and alone. So whether it's 17% or 27%, to me, those numbers still sound really high. And something we've talked about a lot on how do we fix it is this, this rise in psychological stress of various kinds for, for young people. It's gone up a lot over the last couple of decades, I understand. What accounts for it? What we're seeing is an increase in children and adolescents with uh, disorders of emotional regulation. So anxiety and depression are disorders of emotional regulation when we can't regulate our emotions from going too high or too low. And no one really wanted to ask, well, where does it come from, our ability to regulate emotions? So I felt the need to explain to people that our ability to regulate our emotions has to do with whether we get enough in the first three years when our right brain or the social emotional part of our brain is developing. Um, so I wrote a book about the fact that the first three years matter very much in terms of your physical and emotional presence for your children to create, lay down the foundation, if you will, for that emotional regulation going forward. And parents are more preoccupied, more absent, less available to, to very young children than ever before. So the children are going into childhood and adolescence, you'd say, with less of a foundation than ever before. That book is called Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. Why did you write it? Well, in my practice in New York City, I was seeing over the last 31 years an increase in children being diagnosed and medicated at an earlier age for mental disorders. There's a statistic that says there's been a 400% increase in 
children between the ages of 12 and 19 taking psychopharmacological drugs between the 80s and now. And it's actually higher even than 400%. So we'd say, Houston, we have a problem. And my next book is about how parents can help to emotionally regulate their teenagers. So we, we say there's two critical windows of development, zero to three and adolescence, which is nine to 25, where parents have a great, great impact on whether their children can regulate their emotions going forward into adulthood. One other factor you talk about is that teenagers are getting more sleep. Why does that matter? So I hear parents all the time getting so angry at their children because they don't want to go to sleep. Their adolescents don't want to go to sleep before midnight or one in the morning. And they feel it's a discipline issue. And what they don't realize is it's not. It's actually a hormonal issue. So due to puberty and the changes in hormones, uh, adolescents don't get tired till later in the evening. It has to do with the production of melatonin, which because of puberty isn't produced till later in the evening. So they actually don't get tired till later. And then their natural body rhythm wants to sleep later in the morning. Uh, many of them say they have anxiety because their parents say you have to go to sleep at midnight or 11 o'clock and they can't fall asleep. Uh, and then they start to develop anxiety over falling asleep because they know they have to get up at six in the morning to go to school. So schools really haven't taken this into consideration either, that schools should start later with adolescents if we're following their natural rhythms. And we know that depression is tied to lack of sleep. So it, it would be equivalent as an adult if I said to you, I'm going to tuck you into bed at seven o'clock and you have to go to sleep at seven o'clock. Most adults would say, I can't go to sleep at seven o'clock. My eyes are wide open. I'm not tired. That's what it's like for an adolescent to go to sleep at 10 o'clock. So you'd like to see schools bring the younger kids in earlier, but let the older kids not start till 9, 30, 10 or something like that. Exactly. You would find the depression rates in adolescents would drop significantly because there's there's sleep deprivation in adolescence in America. And you're saying 9, 9, 30, you know, there's some schools in America for teenagers that start at 7, 15 in the morning. That had to do with the change in in adults' work schedules, because there's more two-parent families that are working. It was out of convenience for the parents. But meanwhile, nobody was asking the big questions about how do adolescents function biologically. During COVID, they've been getting more sleep. They've been able to go to sleep later and get up later because of being home and not having to commute. And so that's helped to lower the depression. I hear a deeper impact in what you're saying, which is an argument for a shift to a more child-centered society. That's what I've always said about my message, is that it's child-centric and that we are not a child-centric society. We are, um, as Rabbi Lord Sachs, who just died, said, we are an I society, a me-me-me society, not a we society. And that shift has been very, very hard on children in particular. When your book about prioritizing motherhood came out, you told the Wall Street Journal you became a bit of a pariah in some circles. It was a message not everyone wanted to hear. It was a peculiar thing that happened to me, really, because I, I sort of consider myself a centrist, uh, but probably leaning a little more liberal, you know, given that I'm uh, in the field I am, given that I live on the Upper West Side, given that I'm Jewish, all these things sort of lend themselves to saying, well, I must be a liberal. I'm sort of a centrist to liberal. But I was sort of rejected by 
my peeps, if you will, because they saw my message as anti-feminist, when in fact I wasn't saying that women shouldn't have a choice. Um, what I actually do say is what Penelope Leach said many, many years ago. You know, you don't have to have children. Nobody has to have children to be happy. We have so many ways that we can be productive and happy today. But if you have children, you have a responsibility to care for those children and give them the best ability to be mentally healthy into adulthood. So the liberals rejected me because it was an anti-feminist message. And the right-wing conservatives embraced me because of the family values message, but then didn't want to pay for what I was asking for, which is paid maternity leave for everybody for a year. So everyone has the advantage, no matter what their socioeconomic standing, to be able to be with their children and provide that emotional foundation of emotional security for their children. One of the points you made during the discussions around that book was you, you said that people on the left want to assume that men and women are fungible. What did you mean by that? Well, we're equal in intelligence, in abilities. You know, we're equally capable, but we're still different. And from a neuroscience perspective, we're hormonally different. And those hormones, which are nurturing hormones, um, affect our behavior in different ways. So what the research shows is that when um, a healthy mother nurtures, she produces a lot of something called oxytocin, which is connected to estrogen. And oxytocin is what we call the love hormone. And it makes mothers more sensitive and empathic nurturers, meaning they lean into the distress of babies. Um, fathers produce more of a hormone called vasopressin, which is tied more to testosterone, which is what we call the protective and aggressive nurturing hormone, um, which, which is tied to what we call playful tactile stimulation of babies, throwing the baby up in the air, tickling the baby, encouraging resilience, encouraging separation. Both are necessary roles, but they're not the same. So in our culture, we have trouble with the idea of equal but different. We just want everything to be neutral. Jim and I are kind of pleased to hear you say that because we're both fathers. Jim and his wife raised three sons, and I have a daughter and a son. So you're not suggesting, are you, that, that dads aren't equally as important? It's just different, right? I mean, there are researchers that focus on fathers, and I've written articles about fathers as well. The absence of fathers in children's lives um, equates to different issues. So fathers are necessary for things like resilience building. They're necessary for regulation of certain emotions that fathers are better at regulating, like aggression. So we know that when little boys lack fathers in those early years, they don't necessarily learn to regulate their aggression, and they don't learn to separate from their mothers. But when mothers are absent in the first three years, what we see is that there isn't that kind of development of that right brain. We say by the end of the third year of life, 85% of our right brain is developed. And that's responsible for things like resilience to stress and emotional regulation for life. So they, they serve different roles. And when a mother is absent, uh, there are certain things that are connected to that that are not good. And when a father is absent, also not good. So we say they're, they're equal, but very different. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. More from Erica Commissar in a moment. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Let's circle back to teenagers. Adolescents are home a lot more during the COVID pandemic, but they often close the door on communicating with their parents. What should mothers and fathers do? So teenagers do shut their doors. They do shut out their parents, but they actually need them a great deal. And so if you take that personally as a parent and you go away, then you're missing the boat because when the door swings open, the more you're there, the more you're going to have those meaningful conversations with them. And you can't have those conversations on your time frame. If you're busy, busy prioritizing work, and you come home and you knock on their door, what's the likelihood that that's going to be the moment that the door is swinging open? I always used to find that one of the great times to talk with kids was in the car. And you don't have to talk and you don't have to look at each other. So it makes certain conversations easier because in a way they feel less pressured. On the other hand, the kid can't get away. I call that side-by-side. So with teenagers, side-by-side works, whether you're walking the dog side-by-side or sitting in a car or sitting on the sofa. We know that physical affection is needed by every human being, but teenagers will sometimes reject it a little bit because they feel that it, it babies them. You know, they're not quite children and they're not quite adults, and so they're a little defensive about the physical affection. But you want to keep trying, and one of the ways to be physically affectionate is to sit side-by-side on the sofa with them and touch your arm to their arm. So side-by-side works often with teenagers. For me, it's not just side-by-side. It was front and back. Um, I was was a morning news anchor at ABC News for for many years. And as a parent, it was a blessing because I go to work at at about 3.30 in the morning and I'd get home at lunchtime. And I was Mr. Mom in the afternoon. And I took our kids to all their after-school activities. I was the chauffeur. And when they were adolescents, it was amazing. They just didn't seem to realize when they were having pretty intimate conversations with their friends that I was there. <laughs> so so there's that plus as well about driving your kids around. They don't always realize you're there. Yeah. The key with adolescence is to be there without being an intrusive presence. So to be emotionally available to them without being intrusive. We're talking a lot about the situation for families that work in in businesses where you can work from home, you can work over a computer and you can communicate over Zoom. That doesn't work if you're a, a transit worker or a chef or 
a nurse or, you know, so many are a truck driver. There's so many people who are out in our economy at greater risk of being exposed to COVID and so many kids who, who, you know, they're not home with their parents and more often lower income families too, that don't, they don't have three MacBook Airs sitting around for the kids to get on and Zoom with their, their classes. What's going on with families at the lower end of, or the more working class end of the, of the spectrum? It's, it's really tough. I mean, they relied on schools in so many ways, not just for education, but for, uh, you know, for food, for attention for their children, for contact, emotional contact with their children. So it's really tough on those families. Um, and it's tough on young children. So in a way, young children who have the benefit of having their parents around, uh, who are deprioritizing their work and prioritizing their children, playing more with them, having meals more with them, engaging them more, um, more physical contact, it's been really good. But when you're talking about families um, who are socio socioeconomically challenged, I think it's been really, really tough on those families. And those families are going to need a lot of help to be able to engage their children. They're going to need more financial help. And uh, yeah, there's no way around that. They are suffering a lot. And multi-generational families who live together, often in small apartments, they're facing wrenching decisions. When kids go to school or they're out in the community, they can put their elderly grandparents at risk. That's very difficult. It is. I mean, from the perspective of COVID and these kids going to places like daycare and school, contracting it and being carriers and bringing it back, it's very dangerous to the elderly people who live in their homes. On the other hand, um, I always think of multi-generational approaches to living to be the best thing in the world for children, because when they don't have their parents there, at least they have the people who have the second most intense investment in them, which is their grandparents. We don't emphasize that enough in our country. In fact, even what's going to be happening with the Biden administration is that it's going to go, I'm, I, I'm fearful it's going to go in the wrong direction, where they're going to implement universal daycare as as opposed to giving families uh, resources to spend on giving it to a grandparent to take care of a child or being able to hire a surrogate caregiver. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about that. Well, about when my book came out, I was asked to go speak in front of Swedish parliament for a number of organizations who fight in Sweden for the rights of children and the rights of parents to parent their children. Because in Sweden, they've taken a very uh, socialist approach to, to childcare, which is all children after the age of 14 months must go into daycare. And so we say in Sweden, they got it right for the first 14 months, they give parents paid maternity leave to stay home. And then they say, right, time to go back, 14 months you're going back to work and your children are going into 10 hours of daycare a day. Uh, what's happening is the rise in mental illness in children in Sweden, because 14 months is right in the middle of what we call separation anxiety, one of the one of the most fragile and vulnerable periods of child development, where being separated from your parent, particularly after you've been with them for 14 months, is traumatic for a child. 
So basically, I went there to say, actually, daycare is not the best option. Why don't you do it like they do it in Finland, which is they give parents a stipend of money to spend however they like on childcare. They can give it to a grandparent. The mother or father can stay home for themselves and use that money to care for their child. Or they can hire a babysitter, a single surrogate, which is better than daycare. In this country, what's happening is we are not moving towards paid maternity leave and a, and a family stipend. We are moving towards institutional daycare. So mark my words now, if you have me back in five years, whatever we see in terms of the rise in mental illness in children now is going to increase in the next five years if they go in that direction. You say that you don't want to get too far involved in politics. And in a way, that makes your advice particularly valuable because you know you're not invested in a certain ideological standpoint on this, but I'm struck. I've been researching a little bit. A lot of Republicans are trying to figure out where does the party go after Trump? And there's a wing that Marco Rubio partly represents and Orrin Cass, who's been on How Do We Fix It Before, that say they've got to prioritize the needs of working people and families so that they can prosper in, in our society. And looking for policies it might be closer to what might be considered liberal policies in some cases but with less government involvement if possible yeah i mean so in finland they offer parents or they did offer parents about 14 and a half thousand dollars a year to pay for daycare for a child and instead they said you can have this 14 and a half thousand dollars yourself you can take this and you know use it as you as you wish and i mean you can't advocate as a republican or a democrat that you care about families when you know that families who are socioeconomically challenged cannot just stay home with their children when we know that's the right thing for children, right? From a child development perspective, if we want our children to be mentally healthy, then we have to give them the early advantages they need. Um, so they can't be healthy unless they have their parents and their parents can't be there without some help. So I would hope that the parties would come together on this. I'm just hoping they don't come together on universal daycare, which basically is going to, you're going to see this huge uptick in, in mental illness in children. Erica Kamazar, thanks very much for joining us on How Do We Fix It? Thank you for having me. Erica Kamazar. And coming up next, before our conversation, a recommendation. Jim, what do you have for us today? I have a podcast. It's a long investigation of a mystery, a little bit in the mode of the serial podcast that kind of kicked off the, so much mainstream interest in the genre that you and I work in, Richard. It comes from a journalist named John Walsack. He's a freelance investigative reporter from New Orleans, and he got fascinated with this plane crash in 1972 when two congressmen were lost flying from Anchorage to Juneau along the coast of Alaska, very rugged terrain. The plane was never found. There was a huge, huge search. Then afterwards, various strange rumors and allegations floated about what might have gone wrong. Of course, right now, I'm finding it really interesting with lots of little digressions about what aviation is like in Alaska, about the politics of the time. And he's taken the time to go back and get all these original audio files from newscasts and interviews and, and all kinds of material that's beautifully integrated together. It shows you what you can do in this podcast medium. 
Our interview today with Erica Kamizar. One of the things I loved about it, Jim, is she doesn't really give much comfort to either side of our political culture. Uh, she says things that, that please conservatives and annoy liberals, and then some of her prescriptions would annoy many conservatives and please liberals. Right. We love independent thinkers like this, and how do we fix it? What it reminded me most of is one of my favorite books, The Blank Slate by Steven Pinker, the great Harvard linguist, who examined how the notion that humans can be kind of reinvented from scratch, that we're not born with any particular set of of characteristics, but that we can be remodeled according to whatever the political fashion of the day is, that idea has been very dominant in Western cultures really since the since the 19th century. And a lot of people try to force human experience into this idea that some of our characteristics that we evolve with are, are really trivial. And they often run up against reality. So the notion, as she says, that men and women aren't fungible, you can be equal, but have different characteristics. That's really anathema to many people on the left who want to see men and women as completely interchangeable. This thinking that human beings are rational and can be a blank slate goes back to Thomas Paine and the debate over the French Revolution in the 18th century, a topic for another time, perhaps. But one theme of this episode has been, we know all about the suffering and the tragedy of COVID for so many, but there are also at least a few good and hopeful things that have emerged during the pandemic. They've received a lot less attention. I'm encouraged to see something positive come out of the COVID uh, situation. I'm writing a piece right now about how certain things in our society, particularly our, our technology, have worked surprisingly well. And I think we're all going to be pleased that our that big bad, big pharma that gets so reviled, well, it looks like on the vaccines, they've really come through. And so, you know, our scientific institutions, after some early failures and mistakes, maybe are stronger than we think. So another positive thing that we can circle back to perhaps in a future podcast. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. This show is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. If you're interested in making a podcast or improving the one you already have, let us know at DaviesContent.com. And thanks for listening to this show. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 